she was done. No more was she going to comply with what culture was telling her how to act, how to be pure, and how to be clean. And she agreed in a sense with the rules. She was still in love with her culture. She still loved her life. She was still a patriot. But the past 12 years of rules were making her crazy. She wasn't in prison, nor was she guilty of anything. But solitary confinement was what she had been sentenced to. All because of a physical anomaly, an anomaly that isolated her. Her physical well-being was connected to her emotional well-being. And her physical struggle had crushed any hope she had. She was done with the rules. And she was willing to try anything to find that hope again. She was desperate. And in desperation, you sometimes break the law. How far would you walk if you saw hope in the distance? Think about it. Put a number in your head. Name it. Name that number. Now be real here because I live two miles from where I stand right now on this stage. It's not really all that far. It would be good exercise for me to walk, but it just takes time that I haven't always built a margin in for. Five minutes by car, it's pretty good. 10 minutes by bike, 20 by foot. In the spirit of being efficient, always being efficient. It is often in my car that I make this journey. That 20 minutes of walking, though, I could listen to more than half a sermon. I could listen to a, a full homily from, from other congregations. I could listen to MP3s of the scripture I might be teaching or preaching or just reflecting on. I could listen to my favorite podcast. doesn't even have to do with the Bible. <laughs> I could also put the headphones in my ears and listen to nothing. I'll just fake it. No one's going to bother me with headphones in my ears. I just let my thoughts tumble over each other. Maybe ask myself a single question and dwell on it in the muffled silence. I could ask the Lord for divine intervention. And this desperate woman, she had done all of these things. She had 12 years of walking and thinking, and she so deeply desired reunion with humankind. She saw hope in the distance, so she started to walk, as she had done before. She knew the way. It would be like walking from Lidditz to Harrisburg. That was the distance. She was already weakened by all her blood loss. And she would have to carry all that she needed. She couldn't travel with anybody, and she couldn't count on anything from the people who knew her because they wouldn't help her. Her condition made anyone she touched untouchable. So her plan was to leave quietly, be far enough outside of her community, and then remove the visual things that advertised what she was going through. Maybe then she could move clandestinely enough. Then she could get close enough so that she could be enough. Maybe hear from just one person again. You belong to me. You belong. You. 
Her heart had been hurt over the 12 years of constant bleeding. Don't think she didn't chase down someone to help her. Doctor after doctor took her money. They did some poking. They suggested maybe something superficial, a superficial covering. Maybe eat something different or even the internal application of plants or herbs. But no progress was made. She actually got worse. In the defense of the medical world, first century healthcare providers had pretty rudimentary medical knowledge. The understanding of anatomy was way limited, and nothing was known about hormones and their influence on the female body. She spent all the money she had. Of course she did. She was Jewish. Stay with me on this one. Jews lived under Levitical law. The desire was to be clean, pure, presentable in the synagogue and among humankind. Leviticus 15. Don't turn there. Just stay with me in this moment. I'm not reading every verse. It's Leviticus 15. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days. And anyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. If a man has sexual relations with her and her monthly flow touches him, he will be unclean for seven days. Any bed he lies on will be unclean. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. Let me read verse 25 again. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. Levitical law, the law by which Jews recognized and lived, makes no concession for women with bleeding disorders. Which means she was in a condition that for 12 years cut her off from her husband, cut her off from her faith community, and it would prevent her from bearing children. This monthly cycle that is personal and it's private for us in our modern day was a public thing for her. People knew what she was going through because she wasn't with her husband. She couldn't be with her faith community. And she had no children. No wonder she spent all of her money to heal her body. She wasn't considered whole. So when a story was circulating that a man with skin disease, a leper, a man with leprosy, had recently been healed, it tickled her ears. This healing, it wasn't by some topical ointment. A rabbi reached out and touched him. This testimony hit her hard. And this had an impact on every Jew because lepers were unclean. 
Touching them was an act forbidden by the purity laws. What caused many Jews to look down their nose at this rabbi caused her to lift her head. A rabbi that broke Levitical purity law and touched the untouchable? Not just touched, but healed. This gave her hope. So in a weakened state, she gathers what she can and she hits the road. She arrives to her final destination in time to see the large crowd around this leper-touching, leper-healing rabbi, Jesus. People don't know her. They aren't even really seeing her because of all that's going on with Jesus. Everyone is focused on Jesus. The, el- the crowd is elbow to elbow, and she follows in the crowd, palping up now and again on her tiptoes to make sure she can keep an eye on Jesus. Jesus is her target. I don't need to talk to him. I just need to touch him. I just need to touch him. I just need to touch him. She fights with the crowd to get closer to him, but weak from blood loss and the hike, she wasn't winning with the crowd. Tears welling up, losing hope, but still fighting with the crowd. Her goals change. I don't have to touch him, just his clothes. Just his clothes. So with the strength she has left, she focuses her energy on pushing her way through the cloud, crowd. Four steps away. Three steps away. Two steps away. He's there. He's right in front of me. Levitical law and all that she has been taught is rushing through her mind. And in complete defiance to this law, she extends her arm and boldly reaches out. Her arm outstretched, one of the swinging tassels from Jesus' prayer shawl just catches her fingertip. And instantly, she knows she's healed. Instantly, she knows it. She's been living with it for 12 years. And something has changed in her body. She is free. But the miracle isn't over yet. Not yet. Her hope is to slip away into the crowd, not be seen. But the crowd isn't moving anymore. Jesus, knowing that power has left him, looks to his disciple Peter and says, who touched me? Peter looks around. Everyone's touching you, Jesus. Insistent, Jesus turns sharply around and he looks out into the crowd looking for the one. Now, Jesus was already going somewhere. He had a task. He had a place to be. But he needed to find the one. And she knows it. She's been healed and she can go on her way. But she just stopped the Jesus parade. It was all her fault. She turns back to Jesus. She falls at his feet and tells him the whole story. Everything. How she bled. How she hoped. And how she broke the law. 
And only once in all the gospels does Jesus use this tender word. Only once. And he says it to her. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, it's not enough to heal you. I give you myself. Daughter, you, you belong, you belong to me. Pray with me. What a gift that we have scripture. What a gift that we have an imagination. What a gift that we can explore this and we can can feel these moments, Lord. Thank you for what you've made us. Thank you for healing this woman in what seemed like an impossible situation. She was physically healed, but you gave her yourself in that moment. Lord, thank you that you have given yourself to us. Lord, today I ask your blessing on the scriptures as we move forward. Lord, would you speak through me and would you penetrate the hearts of the people that are in this room, Lord? If there is any callousness that exists on the heart and the mind, Lord, would you remove it now and would they be able to engage the text? In the awesome name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We'll be in the book of Luke today. Ushers. Ushers are walking the aisles right now. They have a Bible they are happy to give you. I use the same exact one when I preach. Raise your hand if you don't have yours. Cell phone, tablet users, this is your great chance to send a message to somebody else, start a game, open a Kindle app to read some other book. People will think you're getting your Bible app ready. All right. So this is your judgment-free zone. Judgment-free. You can fake it. But I ask you to join us. Join us. We're going to be in Luke 8. My name is Nicholas Todd. I am the Minister of Mobilization here at LEFC. It's a real gift that I get to serve here on staff. Um, And it's an incredible gift to be able to preach here this morning. So as we progress in the Creating Space Expecting Harvest series, this is the series we're in right now, I want to encourage you to write down any of the scripture references I might refer to, and you can write them on the back of your bulletin. It's a great tool for you. This writing down gives you something to look back on through the week, and you can check my work. I will accept that challenge. So far today, we've heard from Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke Luke 8 is my primary text, but Matthew 9 and Mark 5 also have the story of of the healing of this woman. This is a pretty significant series we're in right now. This is the first time that life groups have been asked to meet weekly and to explicitly use the sermon discussion guide that is available on the website every Sunday in the afternoon. If you're in a life group and you missed this little tidbit of information, please start this week. Join us today as we look at the vision for our church. So two things I have carried with me the past couple of weeks. 
since we began this series. Pastor Tony said in week one, be enamored again with the story of Jesus' life. His words, his actions, and the spirit by which he spoke and lived. Week two, Pastor Tony also said, disciple-making is about relationships. These are important things as we move forward. And today, when we look at Scripture, we're going to look at how margin of time, margin in finances, and emotional margin can make significant impacts in your life and in the ministry that Jesus has called you to. All of these are wrapped up in relationship, and you'll see that in the story of Jesus. Time and finances today will be explicit. The emotional margin is a constant theme that you will see in any engagement that Jesus has with somebody. Let's look at Luke 8, starting in verse 40. That's page 723. As you're turning to page 723 or in your app or in your own Bible, probably not 723 though, I want to tell you what's happening before we hit this moment. We know that Jesus is traveling from one town to another and teaching. He tells some parables. His mother and brother visit him. He calms a storm. He casts out some demons. That's an incredible summary of Luke 8. So write down Luke 8 because there's so much more to the text than just what I'm preaching on today. Luke 8 is powerful. Jesus is on the move when he gets back to Galilee in verse 40. Read with me, starting in verse 40. We'll go to verse 49. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now Jesus, when he showed back up in Galilee, he was on task. He had a purpose. And that task was teaching about the kingdom of God and proclaiming the good news of God's reign. He wasn't just wandering around looking for something to do. And, oh, I got a lesson in my pocket. So here's a cute story about creditors and seeds that need to be planted. He was on task the entire time. And miracles happened along the way. But his teaching, that was where challenge happened in many people. Jairus, the synagogue leader, steps forward, explains that his only daughter, 12 years old, is dying. Do you know any 12-year-olds? Picture them.
His only daughter, 12 years old, is dying. And he begs Jesus to come to his house. And we don't read an answer here. Jesus doesn't say yes and then goes with him. What we see is the footsteps of Jesus. He gives his time to this individual family, even though the crowds have been waiting for him. The crowd had expectations on him. But Jesus starts to go on his way to Jairus' home. The first moment we can see a place that Jesus gave time. He left margin to respond to individual people, even though there were crowds and crowds of them. There are plenty of other things, good things, ministry things that he could have done, but he decides to respond by giving his time to Jairus. And on the way to Jairus' home, we have the encounter with the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. There is urgency that Jesus get to the dying girl, but again, he pauses to find a person who touched him in the crowd. Did he need to find her? She was, she was healed. He needed to find her. So he gave time. He gave himself to the bleeding woman. He stopped to respond to her heart and that need. It was more than just physical healing. I like to think that Jesus had margin to respond to the bleeding woman while he had margined to respond to Jairus' dying daughter. Margin within margin. Who has that? The bleeding woman tells her story to Jesus and the whole crowd. Everyone hears what she's gone through. And time stretches on and on and on for Jairus. He's got a dying daughter. Do I really have to listen to this? Hey, for the Bible trivia people, are there any Bible trivia people in here? All right. The healing of the bleeding woman is the only time in the Gospels that a healing occurs without the express consent of Jesus. Let me say that one more time. The healing of the bleeding woman is the only time in the Gospels that a healing occurs without the express consent of Jesus. In Matthew, we see the power coming from him. We hear about healings, but in this moment in Scripture, it's the only time. Someone just touches Jesus and he's healed. So get ready. Bible trivia. It might happen someday. Let's get back to it. What do you think is happening in the mind of Jairus? Let me speculate. My daughter is dying. You were on your way to heal her, and you stopped for somebody else. Who is this somebody else? It wasn't just a a normal somebody else. This was an unclean person. And as synagogue leader, Jairus would never allow her in the synagogue. Do you ever think about the fact that a 12-year-old girl was dying And on the way to the girl's home, Jesus meets a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Let's keep looking at this. I would hope that Jairus, in this moment, connects that for the entire life of his daughter, this woman has been bleeding. But as a synagogue leader, he wouldn't allow her in the synagogue. But both she and he are seeking out the same teacher for a miracle. 
How much internal conflict do you think he's experiencing in this moment as he questions his own rules and must engage the story of this bleeding woman? What a lesson for Jairus. Jesus could have moved on, but it was absolutely necessary, absolutely to connect with the person that touched him. He understood the urgency of the situation. When Jairus says, my daughter is dying, Jesus understood what it meant. I need you now. Margin with time is a difficult one for most people. Everybody and everything wants our attention. And these are good things, too. My wife and I had to learn about margin with time a number of years ago. We were both teachers, and we had figured out a way in our schedule that we were able to negotiate with each other what it would look like for me to be able to go to class, for my wife to be able to go to class. And some of that is time-bound. So when I tell my wife, class is over at 3, I'll be home by 3.10, she expects me to be home by 3.10. That's what I have committed to. But there was a problem. A student has a question about my life. A colleague wants insight into the English lesson. Time after time, people finding you or you finding others that you're, you're connecting with. And all of a sudden, my 310 commitment to my wife becomes 3.30, 4 o'clock. And we've negotiated this because she has to get to class too. And we saw that she was experiencing the same thing. Nick, I'll be home by 5.30. But it turns into 6 or 6.30 because the Lord has given us opportunities. So what we had to do is give space for those opportunities. So even though class ended at 3, we had full realization that I won't be home till 3.30. I may not be home till 4. And the same thing for Kim. Now what this allowed us to do is there was peace between my wife and I. Ministry opportunity, absolutely. But because we talked about it, because we named it, we were finally able to have peace between us so that we can have more opportunity to connect with college students and colleagues. Now, if no connections occurred after teaching class, it was a special joy to get home early, be with family, and enjoy another part of life. I didn't need to fill it with anything else. I already had enough. As the bleeding woman finishes her testimony to the crowd and Jesus heals her heart with his tender words, daughter, your faith has healed you, someone from Jairus' house shows up and says the same tender word but with a different message. Your daughter has died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. The same word healing a woman's heart but crushing this man's. This is a loaded moment right now. This statement, don't bother the teacher anymore, reveals the lack of expectation. Jesus can heal, but he can't bring someone back from the dead. Your daughter's died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. It shows exactly what they believed about Jesus. Let's look at verse 50 in chapter 8. 50 to 56. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. 
When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Don't be afraid, Jesus says to them. They get to the house, and Jesus says, okay, disciples, stay out here. James, Peter, John, you're with me. Mom and dad, I want you with me as well. And he tells the people there that are mourning and crying to stop, and they burst into laughter. This man is crazy. She's dead. And Jesus touches the dead girl by her hand. Another strike against Jesus in the house of Jairus, synagogue leader. You don't touch dead people because it makes you unclean. Levitical law, again. The lesson for Jairus goes on as Jesus' words ring clearly. Get up, child. And breath comes back. And she sits up. Take the time. Create margin in your schedule. Create margin in your life. Consider, what can you cut that might give space to the ministry God has called you to? Another question, what can you protect that might give space to the ministry God has called you to? Anyone can do this. I can do this. Our elders can do it. If you hold no role in our church, you can do it as well. Anyone can look at their calendar and how they spend their life and ask these questions. We're still in chapter 8, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many more. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So this group that's been traveling together and doing ministry, it was Jesus, the twelve disciples, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and others. At the end of the section I just read, it says, people in this group were contributing to the support of Jesus and the 12 from their own funds. So, let's talk money. I'll start with my wife. I have an incredible wife. Kimberly is her name. We met in college and started as enemies. (laughs) Those stories are for another day. But one Sunday morning, she sees me standing outside ready for church. I had missed my ride. So, she invited me. She drove me to her church. And it was at this church that I met the pastor who would later disciple me for the next four years. While we were dating, I remember watching her in church one Sunday, writing a check. And I asked her, what are you doing? And she explained that she was tithing. And then she explained that writing the check was an act of worship. 
Now, my face communicates a lot, maybe a little too much. (laughs) Pastor Tony, this last week, asked me what my face was saying in a meeting. He wanted to know what was going on inside. So I tried to control my face to stay in sort of a neutral state. (laughs) But it's pretty hard for me. So in this moment, as Kimberly explains to me that she's tithing and that it's worship, I thought, whoa, what a novel idea. I had never connected with a couple of things. Here it is. First, she, as a college student, was tithing. And second, writing it out became an act of worship. And it all culminated by placing it in the collection plate. She can't have credit for this. She learned it from another college friend. And I, in my life, had never created financial margin. I only ever thought I had enough for what I wanted. I've been working for five, six, seven years at that point. From the moment, the day I turned 16, I went looking for a job. I had not tithed on it in all those years. It took a simple moment watching somebody write a check, watching someone worship, that I thought, man, I've been missing something. This moment is not about tithing, though. It is about finances. We have the scripture here that says a group of people, women were mentioned by name, were contributing to the ministry of Jesus and the 12 through their own funds. I want to briefly look at some of these women. Mary from the village of Magdala and Joanna, wife of Chusa. Start with Mary. Mary had seven demons cast out of her. That's what we know from this text. There is some debate about who she is, where else in scripture. I disagree with those that say she is the person that washed the feet of Jesus with her hair and used the expensive perfume in Luke 7. It's not her. It's a different person. So this Mary, the seven demons cast out of her Mary, is mentioned 14 times in the gospel. Eight of those times, it's in a list of women, and Mary is always the first listed. There is one more list where Mary is involved, but she's not first. And that's because Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And you don't mess with mama. (laughs) Mary was at the cross. Mary was at the tomb. And Mary is the one who told the disciples that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. He rose from the dead. And in Scripture, no woman has ever, ever superseded Mary in her devotion to Christ. A fascinating person. Fascinating. And Joanna. Let's talk about Joanna. To talk about Joanna, I need to talk about Chusa, her husband. So looking just at the text in verse 3, we know what Chusa did. He was the manager of Herod's household. So let's ask the question. Who is Herod? Herod is a name it feels like we frequently read in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at the birth of Jesus, we had Herod the Great. Herod is not often depicted well in any light because this Herod the Great is also known as Herod the Wicked. Herod the Great, 
Herod the wicked, same person. And so this Herod the great in Matthew 2 gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem two years and younger. Herod the Great was also known to kill his wife and some of his children. Of the children that remained, we'll call this one Herod Jr. Herod Jr. was given Galilee to rule. Part of being part of a kingly family is the vast amount you have at your disposal. You own land, palaces, armies, banks, servants, and all, you have all the biggest richest things. You have the biggest, richest household in all the land. Let me ask the question, who managed this household? Chusa. And so as head of Herod's household, what did Chusa's life look like? Think about it for a second. Wealth, abundance, influence, lavish banquets, Chusa was elite, which makes his wife elite. The finances of Chusa would be shared with his wife, Joanna. And what did Joanna do? She funded the ministry of Jesus and the Twelve. Ever think it's crazy that the family in Matthew 2 that most wanted Jesus dead is now bankrolling the ministry of Jesus? how things have changed. So in just these two people, Mary and Joanna, we have elites and we have formerly demon-possessed that have created margin in their lives to fund the ministry of Jesus, to partner with him. When a parable hits someone upside the head, when a person is healed from bleeding, when someone is risen from the dead, Mary and Joanna get to celebrate. They were part of that. Here's the question for you. Have you created financial margin to be part of what Jesus might be calling you to? Or is there only ever just enough? Last point. A short summary of what Pastor Tony preached about the centrality of God is in this question. I want to ask you if God is central in your life. Have you created margin, personal margin, to meet God in your life? And here's why. And this is quoted from one of the textbooks I have right now. It says it so clearly. Mission flows from the inner dynamic movement of God in personal relationship. I'm the missions pastor, so often people hear missions, but this didn't say missions, it said mission. And our mission at LEFC is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And to make disciples, we need to stay connected with God. Matthew 26 is a moment in Jesus' life that catches me because we get a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus says at this point in Matthew 26, before he is betrayed, that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He falls to the ground and prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but your will, not mine. A second time, 
he prays this same thing. A third time, he prays this same thing. And he went to a garden to pray. A moment to just be still and seek the Father. I have wondered how the Psalms of David might have been going through Jesus' mind. The words of David, not lacking anything in green pastures, quiet waters, refreshed soul, all for the glory of God. Have you built margin in for seeking God? Add some margin and see if life, disciple-making, thriving, doesn't spring up from it. We're going to go into a time of reflection. And if the music team would join me on stage, that'd be great. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through an adaption of Psalm 23. The words will be on the screen in the time of silence, it'll be a couple minutes of silence. I want you to seek the Lord. Ask him where space can be reclaimed. Where can space be created in your life for the glory of his name? If something comes to you, consider writing it on the response card. We have a response card in our bulletin. It allows us to pray for you and to pray with you. Now, this Psalm 23 adaption, uh, I say adaption because never in my life have I thought to read Scripture backwards. But we're going to look at Psalm 23, 1 through 3. And then we'll do 3 to 1. Reflect on it. Where do you have space in your life? Psalm 23. You are my shepherd, I want nothing more. You lie me down in green meadows. You lead me beside restful waters. You refresh my soul. You guide me to lush pastures for the sake of your name. For the sake of your name, you guide me to lush pastures. You refresh my soul. You lead me beside restful waters. You lie me down in green meadows. I want nothing more. You are my shepherd. Would you stand with me? Creating space, expecting harvest. Have you created space, margin in your life? Do you expect harvest? How much more does God have for us that we haven't built in the time margin, the financial margin, the personal 
margin. I'm going to end with Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule the peoples with equity and you guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Go in peace, LEFC. Come back next week as we continue the series.